and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert, Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jean Mangan, a legal writing instructor at the University of Georgia School of Law. We will discuss her article, Clinical Syllabi as Demonstration of Best Practices Implementation, which she co-authored with Fernanda McKay, a student at the University of Georgia School of Law, and which is published in the Georgia Law Review online. So welcome to the show, Jean. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That's my pleasure. I thought it was a really interesting article, especially because I've been thinking some about the Carnegie Report myself, which you spent a lot of time talking about in the article. Uh, but for listeners who might not be so familiar with the history of legal education and efforts at uh, legal education reform, I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about that history, sort of where have we been, what's happened recently, and where are we going in terms of legal education? Sure. So I can, I'll start with really the development of the Langdellian model. And then I will go ahead and just say up front, I am a huge proponent of legal education being more practice oriented and more accessible rather than staying theoretical. So I definitely have a bias against some of the things that we've done and I know it and I have to just embrace it. Um, So where we really got this whole idea of how we see law school, like in the paper chase and everything is from... In the 1870s at Harvard, when the president there, Charles Eliot, and then also Christopher Columbus Langdell decided to do this case method or case dialogue method of instruction. And it's the one that a lot of us are used to, the cold calling, the one that gives people cold sweats at night. Uh, And the idea is that by having students read appellate cases, And then discussing what happened in that case, they could use that as a launching point to discuss greater issues of theory or or show development through the lens of a single case. And there's a lot of benefits to that method that we see and subsequent studies have shown, which is that using this case dialogue method or Socratic method is really good at making lawyers law students think like lawyers and think about them quickly. It's very much an immersion method. I mean, it's like sending someone to Yugoslavia and saying, okay, bye, have fun. We'll check on you in 14 weeks and see what you can do. But there's a lot of issues with that method because it doesn't embrace the entire development of the law student. So in the 1930s, there was a guy named Jerome Frank, and he really disagreed with this method. And he said that you're not really teaching people how to practice law. You're teaching people just how to think about law and how to talk about law, but you're not telling them, now, how do you go out and do this thing that we are doing? And so Frank really had an emphasis on more legal education, more apprenticeship, more practices, and no one cared and said, that's nice. We're not changing. So Again, in the 1970s and the 1980s, there were still these criticisms that by looking at these appellate cases, all these judicial opinions, we're really just looking at how judges think about things and what they've ruled. We're not seeing how do you get to the point where an opinion is being issued. I mean, how do we show students what to do when they're actually out there representing clients? 
and still no one did anything. Um, in 1992, there was the McCrate report and it again said, look, we need to develop more professional skills and values. We need to be looking beyond just this academic learning, this, the substantive skills, the doctrinal classes, and instead be looking more at our ethics and our representation. And then we need to have students having access to experiential learning and clinical education. And the McCrate report led to some changes, but not as much as a lot of legal education reformers were hoping for. And then we ended up getting the Carnegie report in 2007. And in that report, what is really neat about that one is a lot of us in law school think about, oh, the Carnegie report, and we use this shorthand. What I don't think as many people know is that the Carnegie Foundation looked not just at law schools, but also looked at other areas of professional education, including medicine, engineering, architecture, and teaching. So they were looking at how, what is the state of education for these different professions as a whole, and then used the looking at the legal education system as one of those things they consider. When they did this report, they looked at large schools and small schools, private schools and public schools. They looked at schools both, both in the U.S. and in Canada. So what the Carnegie Report did that I really like and was my jumping off point for doing this demonstration of best practices through syllabi was these three different apprenticeships of learning, the cognitive apprenticeship, the practical apprenticeship, and the identity apprenticeship. The Langdellian model or Langdellian method that we're so used to really focuses on the cognitive apprenticeship and leaves to the students to figure out on their own the practical and identity. So the Carnegie Report says we really need to not just think like a lawyer, but we also need to learn how to act like a lawyer and also how to feel like a lawyer and that law schools should be cultivating the thinking, the acting, and the feeling throughout the three years, not just the thinking. So that's how we get to the Carnegie Report. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about those recommendations uh, and also the creation of the Carnegie Report itself. Like exactly who was responsible for doing the study and writing up? the report and and maybe if you could kind of like dig a little deeper into some of those observations or recommendations like i i understand the abstract categories but what do they mean in practice okay so the i i don't have all of the the specific details right on the tip of my tongue about the inner workings of what they did what i do know is they ended up picking the 16 different schools, he looked at them during two academic semesters. They intentionally were trying to get different law schools of different varieties. They actually went in and observed classes. They reviewed material. They weren't, it wasn't a self-selection into it. They, they were really trying to get as broad of a cross-section as they could for our education. And so these different recommendations that they make end up being, they're meant to not just target the top tier schools or just the um, lower tier schools or anything like that. They're meant to be, we as a legal education as a whole should have these goals for what we're doing. And so uh, you asked me to go a little bit more into what does it mean to think, act, or feel like a lawyer. 
So the thinking like a lawyer is, what do you do when you encounter legal material? It's that case method of instruction. And the Carnegie Report says there is still value in doing this Langellian method, reading judicial opinions, parsing them out, using them to discuss in class. But this idea of acting like a lawyer, that's these practical skills that you need to learn. And when I did this, put together these different markers, kind of jumping ahead a little bit, looking at syllabi, but practical skills that they're trying to consider are things like, how do you interview clients? How do you counsel clients? How do you uh, communicate with clients, with colleagues, with superiors? How do you effectively advocate for a client? How do you prepare a case? How do you prioritize? How do you actually do legal research in a practice setting? And those are skills that I don't remember being really important when I was in law school. I mean, I tried to take some practice-oriented skills classes, but I had to really go find them. But those are the things that I was supposed to be able to do from day one when I went into practice. So so that's that idea of the, the act like a lawyer. And then for thinking like a lawyer, it's things about like what, what are our ethics? What are our ethical obligations? What does it mean to be professional? And that there's a difference between acting ethically and acting professionally. There's also the idea for this identity formation is if you're going to identify yourself as a lawyer, what does that mean are your touchstones? and as professors, we have what to me is a really grave responsibility to model how we think lawyers should act. And we have to understand that by impressing upon students that feeling like a lawyer, that what it means to be a lawyer is a certain kind of thing that we have the ability to really shape thoughtful, meaningful, or social justice-minded advocates for whichever side of the V they end up being on, but showing them what looks normal, what what is acceptable, what isn't, and why. Um, and then the other thing about feeling like a lawyer that I think is really important to talk about, and it's a big deal for me, is talking with students about how do they manage their stress, how do they draw boundaries, and how do they practice self-care because law school is in a lot of ways a testing ground for what it's going to be like when you're out there in the real world without people who are always willing to say, I understand you're having a hard day and you just yelled at me because you're stressed out. That's not the response that you're going to get. So, so those are what those different apprenticeships really break down into some for some more specifics. So I wonder if as well you could talk a little bit about the reception of the Carnegie report like how is it received by the legal profession and in addition sort of how is it received by law schools and legal academics so i think there's a difference between what people said they thought about it and what they've actually done um I think that in 2007, what we also have to think about is that in 2008, we had the market crash and went into a great recession. And so the Carnegie Report came out at a time where I don't know that it could it would have been as impactful as I think it has been if it hadn't also been for exterior forces. So I started law school in 2008. 
And I accepted law school in February of 2008. And then by the time I started in August of 2008, my expectations of what I should expect as a lawyer were very different. And I think that law schools as a whole have had to respond to the change in what practicing attorneys do and how clients are choosing to engage with attorney practices. And so to go back to your question, I think that practicing attorneys in general really like what the Carnegie Report says, but they also don't have to implement it. I think that the law school's see the value of what the Carnegie Report is asking for, and some schools have really embraced it, but that there's still, there's a challenge to completely treat all of these these three apprenticeships equally, and there is some pushback from some longer-serving faculty about what their role is as a professor and having to make these kinds of changes. So... I think it's really hard to look at the Carnegie Report and how people say it's this groundswell and, and it changed everything if you don't consider what happened in 2008. Um, so I say in my article that this time the law schools listened, that they that they had to have a change, but I do think that it was more than just the report itself that made that happen. So I think the, the other thing about the Carnegie Report I think did have an impact is it because they also looked at other professional areas, particularly medical school. I think that that influenced legal educators towards being more receptive to what they were saying, because we as professors, as law schools want to be seen as a profession, not a trade school, and often do liken ourselves to medical schools producing doctors. For, and, and there's some great analogies there, and there's also some great distinctions. Uh, but I think that seeing the comparison to other professions made law schools go, oh, okay, so this isn't just us being attacked for what we've always, quote, always done, which has really only been 130 years. But this is just saying we, there's actual evidence that shows other ways can work and may, in fact, work better. Huh, maybe we need to try. Well, so in your paper, you look at the implementation uh, of the recommendations in the Carnegie Report in a particular context in law schools, uh, namely the clinical context, and through a particular lens, right? Like through syllabi and how syllabi reflect the sort of mindful educational goals of of educators. Um, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think that works. Like, you know, the study that you did for the paper, what did it consist of and why did you choose this particular lens as one appropriate for thinking about the implementation of the Carnegie recommendations? Sure. So first, I am now full-time legal writing instructor at, at Georgia. But when I wrote this article, I was actually serving as the staff attorney for the Wilbanks Child Endangerment and Sexual Exploitation Clinic at the University of Georgia. So I was very much in the clinical world. And I, so, so I wrote about clinics because that's really what I knew. I also feel like clinical education is where we have 
more opportunities to look at that practice apprenticeship and that identity apprenticeship, I found that I was working closely with students who were having questions to me of, but how do I do this? Why does this matter? How does this affect me when I graduate? And so I, um, it's a very roundabout way to get there, but growing up, whenever I had a question about something, my first response would be to go find a book about it and read about it and see if that could answer it for me. And that just shows you how nerdy I am. But then I started thinking these students are having these questions. I'm a staff attorney. I, I can't always say pedagogically what the director's goals are. Um, you know, I know she has them, but since I didn't put them together, I didn't really know. And then I started thinking, well, what would I have wanted as a law student to know? Like, where would I go first? And to me, looking at a syllabus is for those students who do read syllabi. That's a whole different kind of conversation about who even reads a syllabus. But um, there's actually, we're now way off track, but Someone just posted on the Legal Skills Professor blog about someone who has his criminal law course aims and goals, and how he's refined it and his grading procrastination. Just fascinating about this whole who reads the syllabus and who doesn't. But I thought, how do our syllabi do at telling students why they're doing things? And would the syllabus practice what it preaches? If we're supposed to be on the we're supposed to be developing these, these practice identities, practice and identity apprenticeships. Are we explicitly telling students what we're doing? So I thought, well, why don't I look at the syllabi that we have for our clinical program? So we had 18 at the time that I wrote this and see, do the syllabi actually lay out what they're doing? So uh, another piece of this is thinking about how could students get access to this information? They may not always want to ask, um, but also how else do people outside of a clinic know what you're doing unless you have something to point to? So that was something else that as a staff attorney I was seeing is I knew we were doing all of these awesome things in the clinic. And I mean, my director was doing great things and I felt like I was doing pretty cool things. And I know my students were being incredible. But how do they even, how does anyone even know what we're doing and how it connects? So back to a syllabus could serve as a vehicle to communicate to students, to other professors, to outside consumers, what is it that we value? What is it we're doing and why? So that's why I picked the syllabi was the idea of, well, we got to start somewhere. And if we're practicing what we're preaching what we say is important to students is what they'll take as imp as important. And this is where my co-author, Fernanda McKay, was so important. She was in the CS clinic during one of the semesters when I was there. And she and I were talking about how do, how do students find out these answers to why? And she said, well, the first place I always would go would, would be the syllabus. And if the professor includes it in the syllabus, then... I figure it's important to know. So, so that's why I picked this particular lens of, of a syllabus. And 
Brian, it was so cool to read how many different ways people put together the information to convey to students. And I wasn't surprised that the faculty at Georgia had covered so many of these things. But I was really happy to see the different ways that people had made efforts to show students, I care about more than just what your grade is in this class and really more about you as a whole developed attorney to be. Hmm. Well, so Jean, I wonder, I mean, do you think that the Carnegie recommendations are especially relevant or uniquely relevant in a clinical legal education context? I think that they can be in large part because they are talking about that they're saying, you know, you can't just do these doctrinal classes that if you want to get these recommendations, so they had these five recommendations that, that they wanted people to do. The one about the Langdalian method of legal instruction, that law schools primarily use this one form, although the case dialogue method is beneficial. It also has some adverse consequences. Um, that they well, law schools are giving these summative assessments. They're not really giving any formative feedback. And that law schools aren't really completely improving the opportunities and experiences that are available to students. So what the Carnegie Report did for clinics is say, what clinics are providing is not an add-on. It's not an addition. It's not some niche place where you just stick your public interest students. It is actually a viable co-equal part of legal education that has a lot of sound principles that can enrich education for all of the students. And so what the Carnegie Report did is gave clinics almost like a battle cry to say, we're important too. We have a lot to contribute. And so at this point, it was up to clinics to step up and show how they could do, and in fact, had been doing these things that the Carnegie Report said that, that needed to happen. And the Carnegie Report talks about that I mean, one of their recommendations is that third, second and third year students needed to take part in, part in clinical training. They needed to work with faculty and other students. So not just sitting in an 80-person lecture class, but having a one-on-one conversation with a practicing attorney, with a professor. And they needed to have an opportunity to reflect on what they just did to help that client and what that means for them in terms of how they're going to practice in the future and how that is going to determine how they'll act as an attorney in the future. So clinics have a really great space. The Carnegie Report sets it up and they say, look, the clinical realm can do these things. Um, But the Carnegie Report also talks about that you're going to have to have the faculty within law schools work together to make these things happen. And so clinics are another place where you can have doctrinal professors teaching clinics to show crossover and show more collaboration to grow everyone. I mean, clinics are one of the best places to teach students how to be self-regulated learners and improve on their metacognitive abilities because you have the space to say, okay, let's debrief. Let's talk about what we just did. Why did that work work? Why did it not? Why did it make you feel uncomfortable? Uh, What would you do differently? So clinics are the place where there's such rich opportunity to incorporate what the Carnegie Report says we need students to have that it makes sense to see 
are we providing them in the clinical setting and how do we measure it? So there's one thing about, yes, it's happening, but then there's also how do we show it? How do we measure it? And back to the idea of, well, a syllabus would be a form of measurement to see, is it happening? Well, what were your findings, Jean? I mean, like, when did you find that clinical syllabi were especially effective at kind of uh, expressing to students the goals uh, and recommendations of the Carnegie Report? And were there areas where maybe they were perhaps less effective? Sure. So uh, Fernanda and I came up with 20 different markers that we wanted to look for in the syllabi that we had. And we each, so we collaboratively put together the markers, and then we each independently reviewed the syllabi for presence of those markers, and then we compared our notes. And when we didn't agree, if I said, yes, the marker's present, and she said, no, it wasn't, we would go back through and look at it again and make a determination. So, So based on our doing that, we found that clinics did the best at saying that they were going to thoughtfully reflect on material and that they this, they did a really good job setting clear expectations of students. So 82% of the syllabi that we reviewed set forth those clear expectations and time for thoughtful reflection. And we thought that was, that was good. One of the things I think everyone uses a syllabus for is to try and tell students what they're expected to do. So that was... So that was good to see. The other thing that the clinical syllabi did a good job with is they talked about that they were going to cover substantive law of some kind. So most clinics aren't, I mean, I can't think of a clinic that doesn't have to cover some area of law in a, to be able to actually practice it. So I was looking at doing um, civil litigation and we were also looking we also did juvenile dependency work. So we had juvenile court law. We also were having to deal with sex abuse and, and can you bring a civil claim and under what does that look like? So they all say they're going to talk about that. And then they all, and so that was 71%. And then also 71%, the syllabi talked about communicating with colleagues, practicing what it would look like to, to work collaboratively with someone, um, how did you, and how did that affect your ability to represent clients well? Again, something that law schools don't always do a good job of is giving you practice about how to work with people. A lot of people that come to law school are those people who hate group projects because they had to do the whole group project on their own. And that fear makes it hard for folks to work together. And a lot of law is working together. So, so that was good to see that. Um, the places where I was really, I, I personally was disappointed with what the clinics did is they didn't talk a lot about things like how do you prioritize cases and tasks? Um, only 29% of the syllabi said that they were going to address that. 24% of the syllabi addressed self-care or stress management. And that was also really disappointing. Um, and then also... I think it's really important to discuss ethical rules and rules of professionalism and that there is a difference between the two. And only about half of the syllabi explicitly covered one or the other. And and I don't have the number in front of me, but I want to say only two of the syllabi even 
made any effort at showing that there was a difference between them. So I think that the syllabi overall, were, they, they were doing a good job to convey to students those clear expectations. But what they really were lacking in was those attorney values that are being taught. And, and that's where I think that clinics have such an edge on any other part of law school is that they're able to tell, to help students figure out what do I want to look like when I practice and seeing that the syllabi weren't covering that to me, what it could say to a student is that's not as important as that. I learned the substantive law and that I thoughtfully reflect on the material, even though I don't really know what that means. So, so those were, those are generally my findings. Well, so this is probably maybe unavoidably a little speculative, but I, I wonder if you had an impression or a sense of the extent to which syllabi were incorporating these Carnegie recommendations uh, in an intentional and sort of uh, programmatic way, maybe even at sort of an institutional uh, request or expectation, and to what ex- or to what extent you, you, it struck you as being something more organic. In other words, like is this something we're doing programmatically in legal education, or is it kind of more of a catch as catch can, uh, catch catch as catch can kind of thing? For the limited sample that I've looked at, and for my very high standards, I would say that it is a catch as catch can approach right now. But I don't think that that's because on a programmatic level, we don't value what the Carnegie Report is saying, particularly in terms of developing this practice apprenticeship and identity apprenticeship. I think a big part of it is particularly for clinicians that they're focused on serving real clients with real issues and they put together their syllabus and figure I'll talk about the rest of it later, and they do with the students. So what what I'm trying to suggest is that by taking some more time on the front end to reflect on what are your what are your aims and goals for this semester, and how do you communicate them to students, that that clinicians should do that, and that a syllabus is a good place to start. And if they want to think about what are my aims and goals, they can go look at the Carnegie report and pull that and use those as a reason for why am I doing this thing? I think a lot of professors have really good instincts, but they're not sure how to move forward with them. And I think that the Carnegie report and then the best practices by Stuckey, and they look at that 10 years later, is that there are resources out there to help you develop those instincts into something that can be beneficial. But I don't think that a lot of people focused on that. And I think it's because they think there's, they understandably have what they think are more important pressing issues. And I mean, for me, we had clients who had been removed from homes where their biological parents were sexually abusing them. It was more important to me at the time to make sure that that child didn't commit suicide than whether I explicitly stated, and we're going to talk about self-care. That being said, I think that alerting students at the beginning that that's an important part of the class 
is what lets them know when we have those debriefs, when we're talking about those things, that it's worth paying attention to because it can guide them later on. So not programmatic yet, but I think that not people devaluing it. I think it's just a a prioritization issue more than anything. Mm. Well, so Jean, in in closing, your paper focuses on syllabi and the implementation of these recommendations in a clinical context. But but I wonder if you think that it has any implications for other kinds of law school classes. I mean, I'm a doctrinal professor primarily, and I, you know, are, are are there things that I should be taking away specifically from the findings that you have and uh, uh, that you've made? And are there ways that you think I can implement some of these recommendations in my syllabi as well? Yes, I have lots of ideas. I think that what I looked at for clinical syllabi certainly isn't limited to just that. I think the biggest place that doctrinal faculty can use their syllabi is in two places. It's the cognitive apprenticeship and it's in the identity apprenticeship. With the cognitive apprenticeship, going ahead and explicitly saying, we're covering this substantive law and I'm going to test you on it in this way. I think being really clear about what your goals are and why you're trying to get there. So there are some teachers, some professors that really like to be, okay, here's the statute. Here's the case law. Here's the theory. Next topic. Here's the statute. Here's the case law. Here's the theory. And some people more want to walk in and say, okay, in the past 50 years, the United States Supreme Court has grossly curtailed a criminal defendant's right to a fair trial. Why? Whatever your approach is, going ahead and telling the students what it is and what you value lets them have an idea about how to participate. And participate meaningfully, which I think most law students want to do, but they benefit from some guidance. And then with the identity apprenticeship, something that I did after I wrote this paper when I transitioned into legal writing is I have a section that's just called resources. And I borrowed heavily from one of the clinical syllabi that I looked at, but it says, look, during law school, you as a person may have difficulty handling law school, handling a personal issue in your life, all kinds of things. It is okay to need help if you need it. And here are the different resources that the law school and that the university provides. And so one of the things I look at in my paper is talking about there's all of these substance abuse issues and mental health concerns. And the people, the participants who responded in the study said, what are the barriers they encountered when they were seeking help? And it was, they didn't want others to find out they needed help. And they had these concerns regarding privacy and confidentiality. So between that and worried about having to report to the bar, having something on your syllabus that says, look. It is okay to need help. It is okay to seek resources. It's okay to do these things. And here are things that are available. And here's how they can protect your privacy. And here are the risks you run if you use this. I did run that all through our student. Um, We have a student coordinator who works with students with disabilities and helping provide these mental health resources. So I had her okay my section before I handed it out. But... I think that's something that every single professor can put together and can have on their syllabus. And it just tells students that 
you as a professor recognize their whole people, not just numbers or not just automatons answering doctrinal law questions one after the other and says, please care for your whole self. And at the end of the day, I think that's a lot of what the Carnegie Report was encouraging is we need to recognize law students and lawyers as whole people, not just brains that we dump information into and expect them to spit back out. Well, Jean, thanks so much. I mean, it's been really great having you on the show. And this has been a really informative and enlightening conversation to me. I'll definitely be keeping it in mind as I revise and hopefully improve my syllabi for the spring semester. Well, thank you again for having me and thank you for letting me share my thoughts. I appreciate it.
Awesome. 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 Awesome.